Anthony for three. Bang! Curry way downtown. Bang! Doncic pulls up, three-pointer, bang, bang, it's good, Doncic wins the game at the buzzer. Welcome to another edition of the Knockdown J Podcast. I am your host, Jalen Dixon, and of course, it is the back half of the second week of NBA basketball. I have not given too many of my reactions to a lot of the stuff that's taking on because I've been waiting for the perfect time and the perfect person to hop on so that we can discuss some of the early goings in the NBA. It's been a pretty crazy start to the season with a couple of teams that have overachieved, a couple of teams that have underachieved, and a lot of players who are setting a new bar for, I guess, what breakout candidates look like. But we're going to get into that a little bit later. But to start, I want to start by introducing my guest first time on this show, but I had him on my old podcast. That's how I know he was the perfect guy to have this conversation with. Creator of the Hot Takes on Hoops uh, page on Instagram. He actually has multiple pages covering sports, but this is one of the ones that I've familiarized myself with the most because when it comes to basketball stats and graphics, this this might be the tip top. Jackson Chin of the Hot Takes on Hoops page. Jackson, how you doing, man? Good, good. Appreciate that intro. Um, Yeah, I'm excited to get into it. Talk Talk a little basketball again, so yeah. Yes, sir. So with the start of this season, I kind of give a prelude to it in terms of how crazy things have started out. And with that being the case, before we get into any like specific storylines or anything, just from what you've seen so far, what are some of your initial reactions to some of the things that have happened so far early on the season? Yeah, for sure. So one thing, the biggest thing that I think I've noticed, and this happens a lot, I feel early in the season, but I feel this season it's been um, really apparent is that cohesiveness um, has been really vital and not just in terms of having the same core that you had last year, but also if you look at the, a team like the Jazz, um, having a core that works together really well. Because um, again, this even a team like the Jazz, they're effectively a completely new team. They're rebuilt um, or in that, they're in that rebuilding phase, that reconstruction phase. But um, with Sexton and Markin and especially, you, um, that team just fits together in a weird way very well. Um, and going into the season, we didn't really know how it would work out with, um, especially with the three guards that they have in Sexton. Um, they kept Conley and Clarkson, obviously. So, but like a team like that has been um, very cohesive together. A team like the Spurs, um, and then obviously um, we'll probably dive into this a lot more later. But you have teams that um, don't look as cohesive, um, like the Lakers, um, who. <laughs> Who are struggling, especially at the beginning, the beginning of the season. So I feel like that trend um, happens a lot, but I feel this season it's been really um, emphasized in that way. Um, a few other things. So that was the main thing, and just a few more small things. Um, seeing Trey Young in more of an off-ball role um, has been interesting. Just with Dejounte, um, I saw something like he's um, the amount of baskets that he scored that. Um, have been assisted on, have like effectively doubled since last season. So that's an interesting thing. Um, the Knicks and just their team building, I think I, a lot of people, just because we perceive that they overpaid for Brunson, overlooked their team building. Um, Isaiah Hartenstein has looked well, really good in his role. Um, Mitchell Robinson has played um, so far like a DPOY candidate, um, just as a rim protector. 
And um, this is this is a Knicks team that's doing well right now, and RJ hasn't even really gotten off the ground yet. Um, so it'll be interesting to see what they look like when they're firing on all cylinders, a team that not really many people um, took a look at. But um, maybe we will, especially if RJ starts to get going. Um Brogdon, um, Malcolm Brogdon is still fitting into his role in the Celtics. I think it's going to be interesting to see what happens um, or how he's able to fit into that role. Um, he had a solid first game, and right now he's around like 12 points per game, so still kind of getting into that. Um, I'm really interested in that role because I I think a lot of us assumed that he was going to be in the starter role. Um, I thought he, he w- he's been a starting caliber player his entire career, but I think off the bench, it, it's just going to take a little bit of adjusting. And um, I think he could do a lot of stuff that, as a creator. just hasn't fully fleshed out yet. Um, the Raptors and their roster construction. Um, I, last year, I would have said the same thing, but I just really like the way that they're trending. Um, Siakam continues to grow as a player. Um, and he came into the league as an older player, but even at his age, it's impressive how much he's growing as a player. Um and then the Christian Wood fit with Mavericks um, has been very interesting. He's kind of, in a different way, he's kind of filled that Brunson role and maybe even more so. Um, again, it's a small sample size, but he's worked really well with Luka. And um, kind of the same thing with the Raptors. The Pelicans roster construction um, has looked pretty beautiful. Um, and this is a team that's um, still working Zion back. So um, those are kind of like my main standout things. Um, but, yeah. Yeah, I think one of the cool things that you touched on a lot, and I think this is a point that has to kind of be brought up a lot more during this season than others um, in the past more so is the idea of roster construction. Uh, Me and Brian actually talked about this on one of my early podcasts when I was launching this show, and it was the idea that I don't believe that the idea of a big three is as feasible in today's NBA in terms of winning a championship as in years past. I think one of the things that's become a little bit more important is the ability to have five guys on the floor at any given time that are not net negatives on either side of the floor. If you're one of those guys that falls into an area of expertise that limits you on the other side of the floor, then it puts you at a disadvantage to the point that you somewhat become unplayable. I think a really interesting example of that in the early going, and Brian actually made a a point of this on one of my TikToks too, was like the idea that Matisse Thybul for the Philadelphia 76ers hasn't played nearly as much. He's seen his role actually reduced in the early goings. Now, of course, it's only been about four or five game sample size, but it is something that's notable because, yes, we know that he is a defensive specialist, a defensive Star Wars, but he is a guy that when it comes to the offensive side of the ball is a guy that you don't really worry about very much. I think another thing, too, Again, we are good. we'll get into it later, so I don't want to beat the drum too hard early on. But again, a team like the Lakers, for years we've all came up with the the easy uh, fit standard of LeBron James, solid, solid center and Anthony Davis, shooters in the middle, fill the gaps. You're a championship caliber team off the rip. And we see that when you don't formulate it, formulate the roster to that to that courtesy, it puts them in positions like this one where they lose to the Denver Nuggets. I actually had them winning against the Denver Nuggets last night in my daily picks challenge of video because I thought they were due for a dub. And it seems like whether Russell Westbrook is or isn't in the lineup, they still just don't play well enough to win offensively. Again, we'll get into this later. They're oddly supremely solid on the defensive end. But again, that comes down to your effectiveness on both sides of the floor. So I think that idea of cohesion 
and roster construction is going to be something that's going to be much more important moving forward as we kind of move away from the big three era. I think even an interesting space like the Brooklyn Nets, for example, Ben Simmons has been not necessarily a net negative through the first uh, three to four games, but a guy who definitely has taken a step back. And I think that with his role being reduced to a certain extent as a ball handler, it's kind of changed the way he's chosen to play the game in a way where he's become even more passive now than he probably was before as a scorer. And that's something that has been, that's been really limiting to that team because they're already a team that doesn't have a ton of shooting in that starting lineup outside of KD and Kyrie. So all of these things I think are just really interesting when you talk about the idea of specifically roster construction, and a lot of that is showing up in the early goings of the season. I think Utah, we'll get to them in a little while. Uh, they're one of those teams that's uh, a good representation of it. Actually, let's just, we'll, we'll, just, we'll start with them instead of starting with Philly. The interesting thing with Utah, and I want to get your points a little bit more specific with this one, is the interesting thing with Utah is we understand that this is not sustainable long-term. We understand that also Utah probably isn't looking to make this sustainable long-term, although the players might disagree. Of course, they're playing for, you know, notoriety <laughs> and a check for God's sakes. But at yeah. the same time, we know we know what's on the other side of the NBA draft. But, uh, you know, in terms of what everybody's competing for to the point that Adam Silver felt is the need to have to put out, you know, PSA that they're watching out for, you know, purposeful tanking. But nonetheless, this is a team that, you know, I, I typically make this joke about teams that don't fit in the idea of a team being like their own iteration of the Island of Misfit Toys. But this is the the true NBA representation of it, considering they traded two all-star caliber players to two totally different locations for two completely different packages with a completely different outcome in mind in terms of what the result of this was going to be, being the focus on not necessarily being so good and focusing on putting together a core that's for the long haul, not necessarily to compete in any kind of real way right now. We know that guys like Jordan Clarkson, who's been playing really well, Mike Conley, and they've already moved on from Bogdanovich, were guys that are going to be like target players for Utah to move. And in due time, we of course, we know that's upcoming. But right now, this team is oddly one of the better teams in terms of that cohesion that you mentioned earlier despite the fact that all of these pieces don't necessarily fit evenly one of the most interesting things that i saw stat wise was that they're like second in the nba right now in assists per game and i heard somebody speak about it like this that the idea of this utah team in the early going is all of these guys know they were dumped off all of these guys know that to a certain extent colin sexton for example for sure were guys that were written off in a sense, coming into the season. And another thing to take into account is that I think maybe this team understands that there's no definitive star and therefore everybody is kind of playing the share the sugar role the way like the Atlanta Hawks once upon a time did with that that Al Horford, Kyle Corver team. But rather than me rambling on about him because Utah is very, very interesting, I want to get your thoughts on like this Utah team and how you feel about their construction considering obviously what their goal is moving forward. Yeah, I mean, obviously, <laughs> their goal was not to make a cohesive roster coming into the <laughs> season. Um, and they've, they've weirdly done it. And it, it not even on paper does it look like, obviously, not even on paper does it look like it should be. Mm-hmm. Um, but the thing is, 
I always thought Sexton's value was higher than what the league was valuing it as. So you have you have that factor. They went out and got him. That was a great move. Even if like um, like right now they have um, they have Clarkson, they have Conley, they have Malik Beasley, they have a lot of young wings um, and guard players um, as well. So they have a log jam right now. But as a team that's kind of finding itself, that's not a big problem to have. Um, it probably works more in your favor than not. Um, but just they're missing. I mean, they they have what a lot of teams um, at the top are missing because they don't have that um, X factor, that star player, or those one or two star players. But they have solid pieces um, surrounding what would be that star player. Because let's say let's say Sexton, um, which in his own right is a um, very solid NBA player, but let's just say. Um, he's even elevated. So I don't know what the equivalent would be like a Donovan Mitchell type, um, which even though I know <laughs> he's gone, but let's just, let's just say um, for argument's sake, you have, you have Malik Beasley, you have Clarkson. Um, you have guys like Walker Kessler. Now um, Markin and Olenek, you have these pieces, which um, on paper don't look like they should fit in, but Olenek and Markin, especially um, in the front court have played great. Um, to start the season. So it's just like, and we'll get into the Sixers again um, with their like surprising start, but like, especially a team, if you look at a team like the Sixers, the Jazz have a lot of pieces that um, the Sixers are missing. And again, like in due time, the the guys like Rudy Gay, um, Mike Conley, probably Clarkson will get traded. But um, right now it's just interesting to see them. It's fun to see them. Um, I think also the fact that you said um, there's not really a definitive like star on this team or group of players that um, need the ball a whole lot, so they do have a lot of assists. I also think that that's just a product of um, th- they just have so many guards and so many versatile players on their roster as well. So I think it's a very interesting team. Yeah, I think that Will Hardy just has these guys playing really hard. I think that's another thing, too. A lot of these guys are high-effort guys overall, but I think this team's coherence has a lot to do with the coach overall, too. One of the bigger things that I thought was really interesting, and I didn't even think about it from this perspective, but Laurie Markkinen has taken a significant jump this season. You know, through again, through the first couple of games, so you don't want to overvalue it, but 21.5 points, three assists, eight and uh Nearly uh nine rebounds, shooting on really solid splits as well. Considering the fact that the three point ball, the three point ball is not going down, but forty five percent from the field, um, and an effective field goal percentage of exactly fifty, shooting just over eighty percent from three uh, from the uh, field uh, from the free throw line. Excuse me. Like one of the bigger things for marketing that I thought was also interesting too is like with this team being set up the way it is a lot of these guys are kind of free to do exactly whatever they feel as though they do best. And for marketing, he's kind of tapped into like his Euro basket mode. And like, that's the funny part about that is like on those teams, that's, that's one of those things where those kind of teams show you that like the NBA players that are typically on the back, back half of the roster are just, uh, standard rotational players and guys are like legitimate basketball players. A lot of people end up dubbing these guys who end up being sixth and seventh guys. is just, just dudes, right? And Eurobasket puts them in a more optimal situation for whatever their skill set is to actually show it off. The same way uh, one could argue like AAU basketball in comparison to uh, high school basketball. I guess maybe some people would compare the difference between G, G League Ignite talent 
um, in terms of the talent they face off against versus the talent you face off against in college. There's that translation and not only just what you might be asked to do in college versus maybe if you're playing in G League night, but also the kind of competition you're facing. Eurobasket is kind of similar for that. And I think interestingly enough, now with when being given the chance, I think he's actually translating those same skills that we've seen in that like more not necessarily minor involved environment, but I guess more minor sample size considering, you know, how long it takes place and um, the actual impact it has on like NBA basketball, which is actually, you know, not really anything. I think it's just really interesting to see that these guys are all being able to maximize whatever their skill set is. Another dude that I think is just going to be really interesting and I hope is like considered untouchable level on this Utah team is like Jared Vanderbilt, who's been like insane on both sides of the floor. The counting stats, this is one of those guys that falls into like where the counting stats are not like jumping out at you. And so therefore, like you don't like speak on him too much, but two and a half steals, very active, 10 rebounds, like like the dude's averaging almost a double-double and it's answered crazy when it comes to being active on the defensive end he's definitely a big linchpin and if somebody wanted to go for him I could not blame him but if I'm Utah he I I think he needs to be a staple for what this franchise is trying to move forward to I want to make a I want to ask you another question about Utah really quick before we transfer over to Philly and it's more so about the guys that we know are on the trading block or actually I guess phrase it this way who do you believe Utah should focus on next as their next top priority in terms of moving off of and what do you think guys on utah in terms of the guys that they should be coming off of are actually valued at or should be valued for because of course before the season started danny age was going for everybody that's going to be on the block is worth the trade worth the first round draft pick or uh you know but then the bogdanovich trade happened there was no draft pick involved and it kind of made you wonder what the how how relatable that kind of package would be for these other players moving forward, considering the wing position is a lot more valued in the NBA than the guard positions, uh, at least especially on the trade block. So, like, like who do you think is next, and like what do you think like these guys are even worth like moving forward in terms of like trade packages? Yeah, I mean, so I think that unless you want to keep. Rudy Gay as kind of like that veteran presence. Um, it also depends on what Rudy Gay's value is at this point. It might not even be worth trading him, but mm-hmm. I definitely think a guy like Mike Conley um, should be moved um, quickly, let's just say. <laughs> he, um, he just doesn't fit with this team. It would be, because mm-hmm. even though I've said like they have an interesting fit with um, Clarkson, Conley, and Sexton, it's not going to work long term. Um, and I think that Conley is the only guy that would be, um, that they're looking to trade that would be worth trading anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, cause I do think he has some value. Um, but again, you kind of have to move quickly cause he's 35. Um, and so the value wise, I think you could get, um, another just like solid ish young player who you kind of grow into a larger role. Um, I mean, they have so many of these guys on the roster right now, but somebody like um, a Bolmaro, um, somebody like that, um, and then maybe just a second-round pick, and Nikhil Alexander-Walker, and just like a second-round pick. I think something like that would be solid just to get um, that off the books. And to be honest, we've talked about Clarkson being traded, and I don't, I don't know. I think that I would hold off on that just for now, um, mm-hmm. just because Clarkson is only 30, and this might be a quicker, just based on 
It's a small sample size, but based on how this roster has performed so far, this might be a quicker turnaround than they were expecting in terms of rebuilding. They might be back um, to a respectable level in the West in one or two years, depending on what they do in the off seasons. Um, we know that they're probably going to have um, a higher pick. We know what Danny Ainge does um, with <laughs> those. But um, <laughs> I think that um, what they do in free agency especially is going to be very interesting and determine like um, how quickly they're going to be back. But I think one or two years – they, they could be respectable again. I think you make a really good point about Clarkson, too. That's why I asked who you felt like was next, because I think a lot of people would say from a value standpoint, Clarkson is definitely playing up to the tab where, like, hey, man, you could probably sell relatively high right now with the way that Clarkson is playing. I mean, the dude's actually moving the ball around, and we know he's a heat seeker, but he's averaging over five assists so far this season, and he's, he's playing within a more pass-oriented system and embracing it actually while still of course being a guy who can be a microwave scorer at any moment so i i but at the same time like you make that like you make the statement about the idea that like this team could turn around a lot quicker than anticipated i think you have a really great point on that and i think that you want to have certain guys who are already established and already have very well-rounded roles within the nba and i think jordan clarkson is fit into a pocket that is not only sustainable, but one that I think is going to be valuable on any team. So why not have him on your team, especially if your team happens to be um, probably a bit more talented than even you anticipated. Again, small sample size. We hate to beat the drum on this too hard, but I think something's still worth uh, keeping an eye, keeping an eye out on considering circumstances. I want to read some stuff out to you as we uh, transition over to the Philadelphia 76ers. And I kind of just want – I'm going to read some stats out to you, and then after that I just kind of want your thoughts on not just the statistics themselves but kind of what you've seen on the floor from Philly that concerns you the most. So I'm going to go through some of the things that stood out to me. Points per game, they're 24th in the league. In terms of pace, they are dead last at 94.8. One of the other things that stood out overall was the fact that um, in terms of team performance, this is one of those teams that has just been pretty abysmal on offense overall. They're dang near dead last in field goal attempts. They're middle of the pack in terms of three-point attempts. Of course, they're going to be one of the teams, one of the league leaders in the NBA in terms of free throws. Um, made, but in terms of attempts, they're still middle of the pack. They're oddly the worst rebounding team in the NBA right now, both offensively and defensively. And another thing that kind of just like was a bit of a turnoff to me was a stat that Nikias Duncan put up on Twitter was basically that the touch distribution with James Harden in the lineup this season as a comparison to last season has him significantly on ball uh, possession to possession more than not only like Tyrese Maxey and his, as a fellow backcourt mate, but significantly over Joel Embiid as well. And I mean significantly by like by almost a hundred plus touch margin. So it has become a bit of the James Harden show and one could say that you saw this coming with the way that the roster was quietly being constructed or maybe loudly being constructed considering they were under investigation for a second but with them adding former Rockets players Daryl Morey at the at the helm and the way they were putting their roster together one could make the argument that this is just a glorified James Harden team with the way it's built but when you have a 
center with the with the offensive and defensive caliber of one Joel Embiid to see the distribution so lopsided in favor of James Harden uh, along with the fact that this team is like not you know not rebounding at a high level it's just a lot of things about this team to me that are a big turnoff compared to what we thought they were going to look like if you just look at them on paper or view them from like a theoretical standpoint so like Again, rather than me rambling on about my thoughts, I want to get your thoughts first. What have you seen about this Philadelphia team that scares you the most about them moving forward? Because this is a team that I predicted to come out of the Eastern Conference with the number one seed uh, by the end of the year. Right now, they are not on trajectory to do that, obviously. Yeah, I mean, so I think the biggest thing is Harden seems healthy. Um, And that can be a good or a bad thing. Um, (laughs) And yes, it's Harden has been has looked much more effective this season. He's looked healthy, but again, you when you have that, and this was the problem with the Rockets teams in the past because he's Harden's always been a transcendent player. Um, I never overreacted to his um, performance last season because I thought that had to do a lot with injuries, and it's looking that way. But with those Rockets teams, it was the same thing. The pace was slow. Um, not a lot of uh, movement of the ball. Um, it just seemed like when the role players um, got an opportunity to create for themselves or others, they just had an inability to do that because they had never been asked to do that um, under him. So, and then you had the whole thing where they um, had Dwight and they had Capella, and then they just went no center and then just lit Harden. And some of that had to do with the fit with Westbrook was better. Um, with Harden with no big, but, like, just let him cook completely. And obviously on this roster, you can't avoid the fact that you have one of the most transcendent um, talents at center probably that we've ever seen in Joel Embiid. And the biggest thing to me is that their bench production has been awful. Um, and it for a team that seemingly improved their bench from last year, which is the confusing part, um, they because they got rid of um, Danny Green, who they kind of offloaded him anyway because he was going to be injured for this season. For DeAnthony Melton, who seemed like a solid bench piece, um, and they got Daniel House, and then they obviously got PJ Tucker. So, but I a lot of people I thought were overrating their offseason even before the season started because everybody was like, "Oh, Harden took a pay cut, and look at all the players they got," and I'm like. They, they didn't get a lot. <laughs> like let's not, let's not overreact to um, solid role players. Like I, I glorify role players more than anybody. I feel like, but even I recognize the fact that none of these none of the players that they got are guys which they need, which were creators off the bench, um, guys like that, because they have enough creation in their starting lineup. The problem in their starting lineup is that they need to be able to distribute the ball more than they already have, and with mm-hmm. Harden, that's kind of a battle. Their bench needed more creation, and they kind of got Melton with that. But Melton, um, even then, is much more better in an off-ball role and then can kind of get into a groove some games. Um, I'm, To be honest, I think that the best move for this team, because I think that Tobias, regardless of what Sixers fans want to say, I think he's actually possibly the best fit um, out of the main core four. He's probably the best fit next to... Um, Harden, just because he doesn't have to have the ball to be effective. 
a lot of the times he can kind of play off ball and he's proven this. He's, he's played so many roles throughout his career, just by virtue of being on so many different teams and um, different styles and systems. So I think he's proved that. I think that um, maybe Maxi, and I wouldn't say this if um, the bench was performing as bad as it was, but especially given um, how ball dominant Harden is, maybe Maxi is better as a um, in a bench role, and you just kind of stagger Harden and Maxi's minutes as much as you possibly can. And obviously, that's not a knock against Maxi; it's more so just the fit. I think would work better, um, and I think it would benefit the team as a whole. And it's just the fact that, and, and I think there's a few other fringe things they could do. I think they could play Shake Milton more. Um, even though they have the Anthony Melton, I think you could still incorporate him just because I think Shake has even more playmaking ability than Melton. Melton's probably better on the defensive end, but just um, as a playmaker on ball. Um, I think they could play Paul Reed more, even with Harrell. Because um, to be honest, I don't think Paul Reed is that far behind Montrez Harrell. Um, I've always been a Paul Reed fan, and I think that um, the Sixers haven't really given him a fair shot, at least in the NBA. In the G League, he's performed amazing. <laughs> Um, so I think there's a few fringe things that they can do, but like, just as a big thing, they need to, they, they need to first get that pick and roll, um, with Harden and Embiid going that, and I don't know if that's ever going to materialize, but you, you got to try as hard as you can. Cause that's, that's just unstoppable. If, if you can actually get them to commit to doing that. Um, and then I wouldn't trade Tobias unless it's get, it gets really bad. Cause I actually think that he could fit well. And then maybe Maxi moves to the bench, and then you have, because um, then you'd have an interesting bench unit with guys like um, Maxi Melton. Um, you have you'd have Niang, um, you'd have House to bring off um, Harold, Paul Reed, um, Thibel, and Shake whenever you want to. So that would be more enticing, I think, and more effective. I think although you're giving a, a probably a a more, let's say, unpopular opinion, I would say this is the way you phrase it. If you're talking to a Sixers fan in terms of what to do, I think I agree with a lot of what you say, specifically the Tyrese Maxey thing overall, because I feel like something that we definitely understand, and you touched on this a little bit more with some of the guys that they have off the bench who are more still like secondary creators more than um, guys that are good at creating for themselves. I think one of the bigger things that's noted about this team, you mentioned it beforehand, especially when it comes to the pace, there really is no change of pace between the starting uh, unit and the bench unit because of the fact that they kind of play within this controlled environment where nobody really is like seeking to score. Montrezl Harrell has been underwhelming to say the least so far this season. I'm one of those guys as a Paul, Paul Reed believer as well. I feel like he has not played enough. And obviously he falls into that category. It feels like every single season since he's been, uh, been picked up. Uh, and I, I don't get it, especially as a team that's struggling with rebounding their bench unit has a squad that I would think between Georgia, uh, George Niang, uh, Madras Harrell and Paul Reed, like if they played more, like I feel like this would be an interesting team from a rebounding standpoint, but, it's just not there. I think D'Anthony, uh, D'Anthony and uh, Shake are two guys who both I think fit in a way that makes sense for this team, but not are not being optimized properly. And maybe the key to all of that is Tyrese Maxey and his placement. I think that's a really good point overall. Another thing that I think 
it's probably already well understood, but it's something that might have to continue to be harped on this season if you want to talk about improving this roster, considering, like you said, the bench's underwhelming performance thus far, is Tobias Harris is a good fit on this team, but he's been relegated to being a significantly overplayed spot-up shooter, which is something that, although is a very good piece in terms of the construction of a championship-caliber roster, that is a lot of... I guess, asset control allocated into one guy who is not even a true focal point of your team, both offensively or defensively for that matter. So despite the fact that I think I agree with you in terms of the fact that Tobias Harris actually fits this team a lot more than he's probably given credit, I think with that being the case, he's paid kind of beyond that where he's supposed to, at least in the expectations of others based off his price tag, is supposed to kind of supersede fit in a way and kind of outperform just the peg that he's been put into. Uh, I want to go to something else in terms of Philly real quick before we transition topics, which is just your thoughts on them moving forward in terms of your belief in them. Again, this is a short sample size. And again, I was, I was about, I was one of those guys that you mentioned in terms of being a uh, overreactor to their offseason. I can admit that openly that this is a team that I felt like with the moves they made on the margins, and the health of James Harden being something that I took into consideration a lot last season, this would be a year where they would really take a step and put their foot on the gas pedal early in terms of producing in the regular season in order to secure a top seed. I don't necessarily know if that's still feasible, but obviously so early in the season that there's still more than enough time. I'm less worried about the seeding and more focused on your feeling about this team moving forward. Like if you had to say from a worry standpoint, from a scale of one to 10, where would you be feeling about this team moving forward based off the small sample size we have? Yeah. I mean, I, again, I refrain judgment to judge them too much just because we're so early in the season. Mm-hmm. Um, if 10 is like, I'm super worried. I would, mm-hmm. I would go like a four. Um, okay. I, I don't even, I'm, I'm somewhat concerned by their start, but again, I don't think that, they, I don't even know if they need to make a trade necessarily, even if that trade is just like a fringe trade, like um, kind of um, fixing like the bench or whatever. I don't even know if they have to make that. I think they have the pieces available. They mm-hmm. just need to get more energy off that bench. Um, Maxi could do that. Paul Reed could do that. Um, playing Thibault more, even though you mentioned like he's very one-dimensional, could possibly do that as well. They, they do have a lot of um, guard-oriented players, so it kind of gets tricky on the bench. Um, but, yeah, I think that a healthy James Harden is an interesting thing because you, you also have to understand that they weren't able to play with a healthy James Harden. They played with a much more passive James Harden last year, um, all these guys, and also they've only had still like half a season to play with him. So I think that there's some feeling out that you have to do, and really they've only played with <laughs> – They've only played three to four games with the actual mm. healthy James Harden. Like how Harden is actually um, not supposed to play, but how he's been, um, how he's played for his entire career, how effective he's been. But so I think there's a lot of fit stuff. Even though this is a well-established roster, I think it goes beyond that. I think there's a lot of fit things that needs to be worked out. But I'm not too worried. I never really viewed this team as a championship contender. I think it depended on how much of a jump. Massey made, but I also think I mm. underrated the impact. I think I, I think I didn't take into account 
the fit of Harden and Maxi and how problematic, let's say, um, that is, especially with a healthy Harden. Like, they just have so many interesting players in this starting lineup, especially that they just seem to limit each other mm. um, based on what they do best is the best way that I can say it. I think that maybe if they make a few moves in the next couple of years, they can be championship contenders, but I view them like right on the fringe of just like, yeah, they can be a top three seed and possibly make it to the conference finals, but the, the bucks or the heat um, or any, or the Celtics, like they're, I don't think that they're um, on that level yet. Although, I think now that they could they could definitely take the um, heat to seven games, and that would be an interesting series. But definitely the Bucks and the Celtics, um, I think, are better constructed rosters. And I, that goes back to roster construction. I think that those teams are more well-established. So, yeah. Yeah, I think kind of just to put a cap on this one, too, is it's interesting that you mentioned the idea that this team may not necessarily need to make a trade. It's more about how they formulate the lineups they already have. And again, we're going to probably beat the the drum on this idea of roster construction a lot, not just on this episode, but probably in the, on this podcast consistently, because I think that. Philadelphia is an interesting case study for the idea that you're a team that in theory with some of the pieces that you have, with most of the pieces that you have, if put in specific roles, they can thrive on the floor um, in different platoon lineups and different things like that where guys are able to maximize specific skill sets. Tyrese Maxey and James Harden are both supreme ball handlers that both work best on the ball. If one of those guys is coming off the bench, for obviously Tyrese Maxey in this sense and more of like a Jordan Poole sense, right? The idea of being able to maximize the 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 opportunity to be a number one scorer and kind of be a more uh, assertive scorer on the floor then you're able to do that. There's other guys from a rebounding standpoint, like I said, with Paul Reed being, being, uh, getting more minutes. Uh, I think Matisse Thibault, despite his limitations offensively, I still think that he brings a certain, uh, level of effort on the defensive end that this team definitely needs. You mentioned effort earlier on when you talked about this team. I think there is a certain energy level that this team hasn't played with just yet. And I think that some of the guys on their, on their bench have the ability to be spark plugs for that. So it's going to be interesting from, a formula standpoint, how they decide to go about playing with these pieces moving forward. Because I think I'm in agreement with you that in reality, they have the guys in place to be able to be a contending caliber team. I agree with you that I picked them as a number one seed, but I did not pick, pick them to come out of the East. And that's because I feel as though, again, when you stack them up against teams like the Bucks or like the Celtics in particular, I don't think that they necessarily stand out beyond those two teams just yet. But I think when you talk about from a talent perspective, I think that if if put in the proper positions, this team this team has the ability to knock somebody off by hook or crook. I think, but right now I don't see I don't see a path. I, I see a pathway for it. the the question will be whether or not they express that. So we're gonna move over to returning stars, and there's a lot of different perspectives for this one, right? So you have Zion Williamson and Kawhi Leonard, who are both currently injured at the moment, but when they were on the floor for the brief time that they had in their like season debut, so to speak, there was a lot to be happy about. Zion was effective on the glass and fit like a glove next to CJ McCollum and Brandon, Ang- Brandon Ingram, something that some people were worried about the dynamic of coming off of last season with B.I. being the guy, coming off of the season that the Pelicans had, being able to turn the year around after a tough start to the year. Kawhi Leonard was uh, set to come off the bench in a more minutes-restricted role, but when he did play, he was extremely effective in the time on the floor. 
but they're already dealing with nagging injury stuff that's going to probably hinder them moving forward. Ben Simmons is a guy who is kind of the opposite end of the spectrum from a Zion Williamson who hasn't played in a long time, but in a sense, like Zion Williamson kind of bounced back and kind of looked like exactly the guy we saw beforehand. It's just, you know, he's back on the shelf briefly. Ben Simmons looks like a shell of himself in, in a retrospect to that. And then there's another guy like Jamal Murray, who I think is kind of like still working his way into the weeds, but a dude who has been effective in his own little way, despite the fact that he hasn't necessarily popped off in his return. So rather than like, like looping all of these guys together in any kind of weird way, who out of this group is somebody that's most intriguing to you in terms of not necessarily their debut, but your expectations of them and your viewpoint of them for like their influence on this season moving forward. Like which one of these guys in this group is somebody that stands out to you. That's like, if this guy for is able to put it together for the entirety of this season, even if he is going to be in and out of the lineup due to injury or whatever the case is, he could be a real influencing piece on the trajectory of like the way this season ends out. Yeah, I mean, I think that we, and I've talked about the Pelicans um, and how they've just built this roster. I think that um, I kind of expected Zion to bounce back as he has. Um, he had one weird game against the Hornets, but again, he's only played three games. Um, had 25 in the other two. He's He's been he's been great. He's been as good as advertised. I expect him to um, be the Zion that we saw two years ago. So I don't really want to harp on him, but I think Ben Simmons is such an interesting one because, you know, we we talked about this entire offseason or the the mass amount of people talked about Ben Simmons kind of going to that Draymond role of just doing all the little things. Um, and especially with Kyrie and Kevin Durant um, being prominent um, ball handlers on this team um, and facilitators, and the fit has just, especially with Nicholas Claxton, the fit has not been the fit has not been there because Claxton has been good defensively. He's he was he looked very um, focused this off season, and it's looked like like it's paid off. He's been very good. Um, the thing is that you basically can't play Simmons and Claxton together. Is what we've learned in just the few amount of games that they've played together. And Simmons, when he there's a difference. When Simmons, and this is more so in him than a lot of other players, because you might be, oh, this is common sense. When Simmons has the ball, he is more aggressive than without it. And you might think that applies to a lot of players, but for a lot of players, it's um, pretty even. Um, if you look at a guy like, well, Steph Curry's the big case basis, just because he's one of the best off-ball movers we've ever seen. But a lot of role players, especially, um, are guys that play in an off-ball role. They're... Hmm just as effective. Simmons just doesn't look like he, he doesn't look like he knows to, what to do without the ball in his hands. Um, and he's always been um, a solid facilitator and he's kind of continued that this season when he's gotten his opportunities, but just playing off of like Kevin Durant or Kyrie or whoever, just, it just hasn't worked. Um, and I think that it's, um, it goes deeper than that, especially when you look at the defensive end, because he's just not the rim protector that people make him out to be. He's a he's a great defender, but he's there's like levels to defensive impact. Like in order to have that top tier defensive impact, you need to be an effective rim protector. And mm-hmm. the rim he's not even close 
to the best rim protector on the team. The best rim protector on this team is Claxton. Kevin Durant's probably a better rim protector than. than <laughs> so it's like he's 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 not he's not a better defender than guys like even Anthony Davis nowadays, um, but especially Draymond, Giannis, um, Robert Williams. Those are kind of Bam Adebayo. Those are like kind of my upper tier. He's not in that tier. Um, he's more of a Marcus Smart level of impact, um, which is still very good. It's just not the, he's not the rim protector that people make him out to be. People assume he's a good rim protector just because of his height, but he's not. And he just doesn't play off of others well. He's not a good off-ball player. And it's not even just because he can't shoot. He doesn't move well off-ball. So Mm -hmm. I think that I'm kind of painting this out to be hopeless, but like if somehow he does work out an ability to play off-ball, that could be the X factor. Because then if he finally like develops into that Draymond role throughout the season, and I don't know if I even see it. I don't know if he will. Um, I'm going to be honest. But if he does, that's a very interesting team. Yeah, I think the because let's spell it out like very specifically rather than kind of sugarcoating around it. Like you said beforehand, the best way to phrase it is that without the ball, Ben Simmons is kind of pegged himself into – the corner of being viewed as an incompetent basketball player. Essentially, if he is off the ball, he is somebody who falls into a lot of the categories, like some of the other players that have elite skill sets, but because of their lack of off ball presence, they do not fully maximize their overall skill set, right? Another guy that I hate to do this kind of a scary comp because I think that Ben Simmons has much more upside, but a guy like Russell Westbrook, for example, right? His lack of off-ball movement, his lack of off-ball effectiveness limits him where he has the athletic capability. He has the physical attributes to be an effective offensive and defensive player, especially from an offensive standpoint. You talk about two guys who have a high volume assist rate as dudes who in weird ways are able to use their athletic ability to almost create for others in ways, right? A lot, the good old Russell Westbrook drive and dump the Steven Adams move, right? That kind of thing. And Ben Simmons, he, he was one of those guys that before uh, missing that time, he was one of the players that was in the upper echelon of dudes who created us, uh, who created open three point looks. I think he like was like top of the league and like three points assisted before he had took that little hiatus. So, these are two guys that have the capability capabilities offensively to be able to do so much more, but because of their lack of off ball movement, they limit the, the true, the, the true nature of what their abilities are able to like unlock for not just themselves, but I think for their entire teams, Ben Simmons has fell into this pocket now, whereas a part of a quote unquote big three, he is almost relegated himself into a much more diminished role, not just off of his play style, but off of his mentality. I hate to beat the drum off of the idea that, you know, the there's the clip that's, of course, going around of Kyrie Irving begging him to shoot the other day, right? He was yeah. in the paint and did not even make a look at the basket. And instead, yes, there was a kick out to Kevin Durant that turned into a three-point shot, which, of course, you would argue is the, the better shot, so to speak. But it does still express that lack of offensive awareness and lof- offensive aggressiveness, I think, is another point that you made in the idea of the lack of balance between his ability to be effective both on and off the ball. He's turned himself into almost seeking to assist. And although it's good to play within a team structure, he, not I don't want to say just in theory, he is their third best player 
overall in terms of just the, the skill set that he brings to the table. He has not played like that, but from a, from a skill set standpoint, I think we all understand that he is their third best player, but with the limitations, not only that he set on himself offensively, but just overall in terms of like, again, from a mentality standpoint, I feel like there's no way to truly see that. And I think you make a good point. If he's able to tap into that, then Brooklyn is really cooking with grease. But without that, this team doesn't have enough shooting in the lineup for it. I think that with getting, you know, Seth Curry and uh, Joe Harris back, that's going to really help them in that regard. But that does make you wonder, okay, how are they going to go about this lineup to be able to juice that a little bit? The idea, I hate the idea of just pointing at guys who are really good and saying, but hey, if we move you to the bench, you'll be better. But maybe, again, another guy who is much more effective with the ball in his hands like Ben Simmons maybe just needs to be in control um, and play in a more staggered role where he's able to play as a lead initiator and just play distributor with the kind of shooters that Brooklyn has. Because they have guys that are capable knockdown three-point shooters when healthy. Um, and he is a high-volume assist, uh, assister in that regard. Maybe that's another thing that they flirt with where they can be able to move him back to that uh, offensive initiating role as, like, the point guard as opposed to being, like, you know, a big four for them and play off that. I think Ben Simmons is a big key to what Brooklyn does because – more than anything, if he's not going to be effective offensively, his ability to guard against the best wings in the NBA has got to be his linchpin, if anything. The Giannis's, the Jason Tatum's, if they were to get to the finals, the Kawhi Leonard's and Paul George's of the world and guys that fall into that area, those are going to be the dudes that he's going to have to be able to guard at a high level because if he's going to be ineffective offensively, the only way he's even playable is if he is at least that guy for them. And you mentioned the idea of maybe him not being – defensively to the caliber of some of those other guys that you mentioned, he's going to have to at bare minimum unlock that to be a true uh, influential player on this team. Um, I want to go to a different area. I think Zion Williamson is kind of a set in stone of like this team can be scary if he's healthy. I feel like that's understood. So I don't want to kind of harp on that too much because this team is good. They are really good with the way they are built, and they have guys that are playing really hard, and I think that really helps them. And uh, they've embraced this uh, quick, high-paced offense that not only uh, really juices Zion's play, play style because he's much more effective in the open court, but I think it's also made them much better decision-makers across the board, and they're playing much more together because they have to initiate the offense quicker. So I think that I think that the Pelicans are doing everything they're supposed to in order to really maximize the skill set of a lot of the guys that they have on the floor. Kawhi Leonard, I would argue that his resume speaks for itself, but I think that L.A. has just pegged themselves into the area of like, we're not going to make any kind of assumptions about what this team is until it's playoff time anyway. Um, because a lot of the things that we've seen from them on both sides of the floor, the depth that they have this season is bizarre, all of those things it makes it where a Kawhi Leonard injury is kind of one of those things where we've kind of set it in stone that regardless if he's on the floor or not during the regular season, it doesn't have very much value overall. So the guy that I actually want to touch on is Jamal Murray. And before I kind of go any, go into anything about my view on the nuggets and Jamal Murray being back, I wanted to get your thoughts more so on this team, because I think the, this, the nuggets have become, the team that, like, 
I don't know. I'm, I actually have kind of struggled with this one. It seems like everybody and nobody at the same time are intrigued with the Nuggets overall makeup. This is a team that got better, I felt, at least through the offseason, not just from an internal standpoint of being able to get talent back, but also some of the guys that they were able to pick up in the offseason. Yet a lot of people don't necessarily view them as the title contenders that I think they have the cap- capability of being. I think that Jamal Murray's health has a lot of influence on that. So, like, what are your thoughts on the Nuggets with the way they've played this season and just, like, you know, what they have the capabilities of doing? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people, if you ask them, will be like, oh, yeah, the Nuggets are title contenders. But they don't – I don't think anybody actually believes that right now, Um, Hmm. which is the thing besides a few – besides a small percentage of that. And I think the interesting thing is that um, they have – Three, they have a solid core three with Jokic, Murray, and Porter, mm-hmm. two of which are still kind of getting back into the flow of things. So I don't want to assume too much, especially it's a small sample size anyway. But, like, Jamal Murray, we've seen him kind of commit to the defensive end in the past. So you can kind of leave him out of that, although his defensive impact isn't something insane. Um, but they effectively have three stars, and none of them are um, – insanely versatile on that end. Um, Especially if you look at Jokic and Michael Porter. Um, And then Jamal is just limited by right now his um, injury and just getting back into the flow of things and also his um, physical makeup of being um, this 6'3 point guard. So you kind of have to make up with that um, at your other positions. And the interesting thing is they've never really committed to a backup center because um, mm. people forget they had they they had JaVale McGee um, a, a few years ago, um, or at least I think it was a few years ago now. Mm-hmm. Um, and they they traded for him. Everybody said this was a great move. This is the rim protector they need off the bench when Jokic isn't playing. And then they basically didn't play him, and it was just Jokic and Jeff Green basically. Um, so I think that they you can't. And now they have DeAndre Jordan, who might be one of the worst options you could have picked up. And they picked him up within, like, the first two minutes of free agency, which might have been the most confusing move um, of the offseason. I think that there needs to be some team building that needs to go on. Um, I think that they might need to look at Zeke Nanaji as kind of an interesting option off the bench. Um, Just another young guy that, for some reason, they're – um, his team has not really looked at him a whole lot. Um, it's a confusing team. I like I like some of the pieces they have on here. I like Ish Smith. Um, I like Devon Reed. I like KCP. I really like Aaron Gordon, um, who kind of balances out the defensive aspects because I really view him as a really – I view him very highly as a defender um, and a versatile one. Um, but I like, I like Bruce Brown. But I just think as an overall roster, this is – this is a team that doesn't fit perfectly. Hmm. I think that you have a good point about some of the things that stand out in terms of their fit. And I think that, of course, the presumed notion is that Jokic cures all, right? His ability to his ability to be able to kind of create for others with his passing ability. Uh, obviously, the fact that the dude plays with a high IQ, a la the heads-up play at the end of the Golden State game, for example, being one of those big statements as to, like, yo, Jokic is really, like, uh, different in terms of just the way he plays basketball. 
Um, I think that the the defensive versatility is going to be the Achilles heel of this team moving forward. If you talked about their championship equity, like what would be the thing that stands out that would limit them from being a real like title contender, it would be their the lack of defensive versatility. I would also maybe make the argument that that has more to do with certain like effort level for certain guys because I think from a positional uh, from a positional size standpoint, they have a lot of guys who can play with like their size in favor, MPJ being one of them, Aaron Gordon be another one. Um, I think that Zeke Nanaji, like you mentioned beforehand, is a guy who I think would be interesting with more playing time. Uh, Jamal Murray has been a scrappy defender in the past, like you mentioned. And although like on the floor, it does not look like it, at least from a statistical standpoint, Jokic has become a slightly more improved defensive player, despite the fact that he doesn't fall into the typical rim protector pocket that a lot of you know typical elite level centers or at least elite defensive caliber centers typically fall into so I think that that would definitely be their biggest Achilles heel I think the big thing with Jamal Murray too and this was one of the things that stood out in the Golden State series and I guess maybe we can use that to pivot into a different question is their lack of offensive creation in that series against Golden State was so glaring because of the fact that the 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 inability to guard was already there. The inability to guard was already there, and the versatility, the almost five out capabilities that Golden State was able to play with in that series definitely put them in a bind. But their inability to find another person to create for themselves offensively was what was really taking them out of games. Mm-hmm. I think that Jamal Murray and of course MPJ being back both bring a lot more to that. I think KCP was like sneaky solid pickup in its own right in terms of his fit there i think that he's a high uh high value threat from beyond the arc i think that he's a guy that um this was actually touched on in a podcast i was listening to should be a little bit more should be a little bit more um aggressive um offensively as a three-point shooter moving forward for this team as well i think that this is a squad that although they don't fit super great I think this is a team that has a lot of things that help them supersede fit. But let me, I guess I'll phrase that in, in the form of a question more so. Like, do you think, do you think, especially from the, the, the defensive versatility standpoint, do you think that there's, there's a significant roadblock ahead of them in terms of what they can do to really vault into championship status? Or do you think, you know, similar, how you mentioned with the Philadelphia 76ers, they have the pieces, but there's more of a role. Uh, role aspect that needs to be explored. I think that um, their their roster is just so interesting, and KCP is a good point. I think that um, Bones Highland is really the piece that we're going to have to watch um, yeah. and see how he progresses throughout the season because um, he's had he's he seems like the ultimate spark plug um, to me personally, at least at this point in his career, because he. He really can ignite their offense when he is, when you see his confidence going, um, and he really takes because sometimes he really takes control of that offense, and it um, is really an interesting thing to see. I think as an overall thing, though, I need to see them fully healthy, and what I what I mean by that is I need to see um, MPJ and I need to see Jamal Murray um, in the lineup together with the rest of that team, and I need to see them. Um, back or almost back to the form that we saw them before. Because um, I'm assuming that neither of their injuries, I think, like prevented them um, or will prevent them from getting back to that form. So I'm just assuming that they will eventually. 
Um, even with that being said, I think that this roster, I just, I just don't see it as winning a championship this year. Um, I think they need, and it might just be one more move, but I think they need one more move to get a player that fits within this kind of odd system, Uh but, um, that kind of transcends them. And I think it has to be a wing. I think it has to be a versatile wing that can fit with Jokic, um, somebody that can shoot. I think it has to be somebody that doesn't need the ball to be effective. Just somebody just like kind of that hybrid wing um, who doesn't really have to be like this otherworldly player, but just fits in with the rest of the team. I think, I don't know who that player is right now, um, but I think they need that um, in, in the, I think they need to look for that in the off season, but I don't think that move is available for them right now. Yeah, I think it's interesting because the minute you mentioned that, I thought about the comparison that it just made when we talk about like the effectiveness of the roster as constructed. And I was like, oh, wow, everything you said sounds like Tobias Harris, despite the fact that, again, the price tag makes him a bit unattainable or probably not favorable if you're talking about Denver, who's already like what above the luxury tax, pretty good with mm-hmm. their three main big contracts. So obviously he's not attainable, but it's, it's interesting that you mentioned that out of the fact that there is there in theory, right? We even talked about it talked about him earlier. In theory, there is a guy who fits that mold, but again, factoring in his price tag and the fact that you can make the argument that Toby probably still fits a lot better on Philly than he does in Denver. I think it depends on how you view James Harden's ability to distribute the ball versus Jokic's and defensive versatility around them and different things like that. But again, that's where that contract with Toby comes in, where he's a guy who I think is very versatile in terms of where he can fit. If you had to talk about, if you had to go through a list of guys and say like you could plug them in on any team and he could be effective in X, Y, Z way. I think Toby, maybe doesn't, maybe he's not like a top five guy on that list for you, but he's definitely a guy that if you look at like role players, for example, definitely should be somewhere atop that list. Um, but again, the, the price tag of it is interesting. So I think that, yeah, you, you make a good point. And I think the emphasis on wing Wing specifically is going to be one of those things that really uh, stands out because I don't think that they have anybody. MPG, MPJ is solid, but when you talk about the ability to plug somebody in to soak up those minutes when he's not on the floor, whether it's just due to, you know, uh, lineups or if it's due to, of course, his injury or whatever, then, you know, they don't really have anybody that's super effective at that three spot. However they handle that, that might be the – like you said, that might be the big difference overall. I, I I think there is a world where they can obtain that if they're willing to put the proper package together. But um, in a season where there's so much volatility between teams that are quote unquote bad, teams that are quote unquote good, and the teams that are like that view themselves as like championship level contenders, I don't necessarily know how many sellers we're gonna have in this season too. Mm-hmm. Which, I agree with that. I think that takes us – that's an interesting way for me to be able to, like, segue into our, like, last real big topic, which is the Lakers, right? And uh, we kind of teased this to the beginning, and there's no way that we weren't going to get to this considering. And I try my hardest on this podcast not to talk about the Lakers too much because they've got enough media coverage as it is. My podcast is not going to be helping or hurting them in terms of this. But – it's one of the biggest talking points of the early portion of the season, not because of how, not just because of how bad they've been. Oh, and four star. I think it's their, I think it's Le, uh, the worst start by a LeBron James led team since his rookie season, I believe was the stat. 
but I think it goes beyond that. I think the the volatility around the situation for this team in the early going is something that is going to stick. And I think it's going to stick much longer than Lakers fans not only would like, but I think that Lakers fans even anticipated, right? Considering in the offseason the different kinds of options that they had um, as potential trade packages, specifically for Russell Westbrook in order to improve this team, whether it's the Indiana Pacers package for Buddy Heald and Miles Turner, which Buddy Heald has been shooting the lights out during the beginning portion of the season. So he has, his stock is definitely going up. The San Antonio Spurs exchange as well was another one that was discussed. Uh, I think the Detroit Pistons were one of those trade partners in the early goings as a conversational piece. But if I'm any of those teams right now, I feel as though there is no pressure to make that exchange with the Lakers in any way. If anything, I think that the Lakers current situation has actually driven the price up on what they would want as those other teams in exchange for taking on a Russell Westbrook to the point that that cute 2027, 2029 package picks with a Russell Westbrook thing. That's always been discussed as a way of offloading him. I think might not even be enough to move off of him considering the, the, the mania around their situation. So I guess the first thing I want to start off with, cause we can talk about fit and stuff a little bit later, but overall, like if you're the other 29 teams in the league, and I know not all 29 teams are really in like quote unquote, the, the race for Russell Westbrook, whether it's for contract offloading purposes or anything in between. But if you're the other 29 teams in the NBA and you're looking at any of the Russell Westbrook related trade packages that the Lakers have put together, say the Lakers did have the gumption to finally part with the 2027 and 2029 picks it's been it's been reported that they've been open to one but not both for whatever reason and so on and so forth but say they were open to giving up two if you're the other 29 teams around the league jackson from your perspective is 2027 2029 and russ enough to get you anything across the league now Hey, I don't think so. <laughs> I'm going to be honest because a lot of these, a lot of these players that they're attempting to get, um, they're like the Buddy Heald and the Miles Turner deal is the biggest one. I think that Buddy Heald and Miles Turner each are worth like a somewhat recent late projected late first round pick hmm. each, just because. Miles Turner, I think his shooting is somewhat overrated. He's not like some sniper, but he's a floor spacer, Agreed. Mm-hmm. and he's a floor, he's a floor spacer. Like he doesn't do much offensively besides that, but he does that, and he can be solid in the pick and roll, maybe in a different system and whatever. But and then defensively, obviously, he's one of the best rim protectors we have. He, Buddy Heald is one of the best uh, spot up shooters, off ball players that we have in the game. They're, those are those guys are worth like. 2023, 2024, 2025, late first. They're not worth 2027 and 2029, which is basically what you're giving up. Like, forget Russ is even in the deal um, Mm -hmm. because the Lakers are just trying to offload him. And whoever, especially if it's a team like the Pacers, the Pacers aren't acquiring Russ because they think he's some valuable asset or somebody that's going to fit well with their team. Mm -hmm. So that, that that's just off the table. If it, if that was a deal that was going to happen, it would have to be for uh, a 23, 24, 25 first round pick. Um, 
in exchange for each. And the Lakers obviously don't have that. So I think whatever deal you're looking for, um, uh, if you're Rob Palenka or any deal that you're hoping for as a Lakers fan, I don't think it's going to happen. I think mm-hmm. that the value of a 27 and a 29 first round pick paired with Russ as just kind of a throwaway, who at this point, especially for trading, especially for trading him to a rebuilding team, which it only makes sense to trade Russ and two late and two first round picks that will happen down the road. It only makes sense to trade them to a rebuilding team. Russ has no value to them. He's effectively a negative asset. Um, he can be a positive asset, I think, to a winning system in the mm-hmm. right system. I think the Lakers are, and again, we'll talk about fit, as you said, but like, I think the Lakers are the absolute wrong system. I think everybody would agree on that. Mm-hmm. But <laughs> it just doesn't make sense given the um, market that they're trying to go for. Yeah, I think that that's just the that's the real reality of this team moving forward is that, you know, we're used to LeBron James led teams being able to make some kind of move at the deadline that gets them exactly what they need or able to kind of turn things around in terms of bringing a new life to the team, whether it's just a simple acquisition or in the case of, I think there was that one 2015, 2016, like uh, trade deadline where they like flipped like what felt like half the team in order to just become a more effective squad. And there's not really that pathway like in years past. And they've kind of set themselves up with this over the last two or three seasons with these vet minimums slash like on the margin pickups with guys that are not having necessarily crazy valuable contracts. The guys who do have significant contracts in terms of like just making the money works are guys like the the Lonnie Walkers of the world who got like the full mid-level exception, which again, I'm not going to beat the drum on contract stuff because I'm not like super savvy with those things, but uh, interesting choice nonetheless for a guy that, you know, still is kind of in a a bit of a prove it stage of his career. Um, Also considering you just came off of a guy in Taylor Horn Tucker who you paid and then moved off of because he wasn't really fitting the bill for being ready for contention right now, but neither here nor there. So this is a team that I don't see having like a really strong pathway towards getting better the way we've seen in years past. And I don't see anyone in the league that feels as though they can truly take advantage of the Lakers desperation, considering their packages are so limited. Um, I want to take that and move over to something in regards to, the Lakers this season that I think is also going to be really important when you talk about, I guess, building off of this year. Cause a lot of people are already talking about the idea of like, Oh, they're about to waste a year of LeBron James and so on and so so forth. And I think that's really probably a true statement. Something that happened recently was the uh, not re-signing, but the, uh, the contract extension of Rob Palenka, something that I think was like a very interesting move to say the least considering the fact that I wouldn't say he necessarily. Well, okay. Actually, before I even say anything about that, I'll ask you your, your thoughts on that. Considering the job that Rob Palenka has done. And of course the 2020 championship does have something to do with this as well. I I would argue it probably bought him some time. Like, what are your thoughts on the idea of extending Rob Palenka, considering the fact that he is a big part of the reason why the Lakers are pigeonholed the way they are. Yeah, I mean, so that 2020 championship team, it, mm-hmm. it's not like if you look at other championship teams in the past 15, 20 years or so, it's not like mm-hmm. this is the same championship team. But given the um, 
assets that Rob Polinka had to his disposal, he maximized that team. There's there's no doubt. Like he, the fact that he was able to get Anthony Davis with the package that he did, um, mm. the fact that he was able to keep Kuzma, who should have been better in the role than he probably was that year. So his um, output wasn't really. <laughs> I'm not going to put that on Polinka, obviously. Um, but the fact that they had Caruso, um, Dwight Howard, JaVale McGee was a great center rotation, Rondo. Um, and again, they didn't have like these valuable assets that you're going to be able to keep long term. Um, but they had a few of those. Um, and I just think that given the tools that he had to his disposal, Rob Polinka built as good of a team as you can. And then they went out and after Anthony Davis was, I think, I think the whole, this whole thing transcends around or revolves around Anthony Davis getting injured. Cause that one season, mm. in, especially in a um, environment like Los Angeles and with the Lakers, just one season that doesn't live up to expectations, even if it's just because of an injury, it can pressure you to do something that you wouldn't necessarily do. And I'm not even talking about really the Westbrook trade. It was all the moves that they made around that. Mm-hmm. Which, and LeBron and Westbrook, like everybody knew that that was an amazing fit. But they, but Rob Palenka almost seemed to do everything in his power to make it so that that fit wouldn't work. Like there was a way that I think that the Russ okay. and LeBron fit could work, could have worked. Mm-hmm. And I don't think there's any like hope of um, um, reigniting that hope. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Um, but I think there is a way that it could have worked, but you lost basically every player that would have fit around them. You lost Alex Caruso, you lost Danny Green, you lost Kyle Kuzma, you lost all these players that would have fit well around, and now you're left with a roster that has no good off-ball options. Mm-hmm. And we talked about this with Ben Simmons. There is not one, especially on a team with LeBron and Russell Westbrook, who are ball-dominant players. Um, and Anthony Davis is fine off ball, but his shooting has regressed. So you need shooters. And they. this might be one of the worst constructed rosters I think I've ever seen. So <laughs> from that standpoint, I, th- I would give him another year, but I wouldn't have extended him. Right. And I think, so, so I mean, let, I, again, I'm in the framework of trying to call things, call a spade a spade when it comes to this podcast. Sometimes I try to be a little too analytical and things of that nature, but I'm just going to call it how, how I see it. This team was constructed in a certain format in 2020 built around LeBron James, essentially, uh, in a way, being like the lead point guard, Anthony Davis being most effective at the five, and them having three-point shooting and defensive players at the two guard through uh, through wing slash four positions. Pretty much set in stone the understood, valued, understood and more valued version of a lineup that is effective around LeBron James, along with the fact that it also incorporates the best assets of Anthony Davis. Instantly after winning the championship, this team flipped its team around in a way that in sync with that flipped its identity around. After being a top level defensive team in top in in 2020, they instantly switched to becoming a more offensive oriented team the season after. And we saw the lack of effectiveness that that had by them trying to get a bunch of guys who are more offensive shot creators and so on and so forth in terms of finding more guys that can create off the ball and things of that nature to quote unquote, 
lighten the load for LeBron James was the way that it was expressed. That goes to another note of the acquisition of Russell Westbrook. Everybody understood, at least on paper, it seemed as like, and I think the film would say this as well, that Russell Westbrook did not fit in a LeBron James led, like did not fit in a LeBron James style of a team. But the, the notable point that was pushed for the entirety of the time in that early portion of when the trade was made was this is a guy that they acquire where, where Russell Westbrook can take over in situations where LeBron James can either take a step back or when LeBron James can take a, can take a seat in the sense of like being able to rest or due to injury, things like that in terms of being able to keep him afloat. And we saw last season that when Russell Westbrook was on his own, he was still falling to team. He was leading the Lakers nowhere, falling to teams like the Oklahoma City Thunder multiple times. Games that we would usually, at least in those times, peg as layups for a team of that caliber. All of this to say that I think your biggest point is your best point in the sense that Rob Palenka since that 2020 championship has made moves that in a sense has made LeBron James teams less effective, despite the fact that he claims to still be trying to cater to the longevity of LeBron James in a sense, I guess is the best way to phrase it. He's focused. The, 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 the roster construction over the last two seasons has been focused on being able to lighten the load on LeBron James instead of focusing on the idea of building to favor LeBron James, if that makes any sense. And I think that that's just one of those things that's really hurt their team moving forward. And I think that brings us to the next point, which is probably the bigger one and the most important one that I'm probably going to continue to ask throughout the season. I think I've probably already asked this on the podcast once this season, but uh, once, once already, but it's something that I think is going to be really important right now. This team is the most confusing squad ever because offensively they are one of the worst squads in the league. They are easily one of the, if not the worst, three-point shooting team in the league, shooting like less than 30% from three. Uh, I think they might even be shooting like less than 25% from three. I can double-check that real quick, but they are shooting horridly from beyond the arc Mm -hmm. uh, right now. Yeah, 21%. So, yes, just barely over 20% from three. Horrible. Yet they are a, what, I think they are second in terms of defensive rating so far through this season. This is a team that does not seem like they're going to be able to get any better. And after seeing the ineffectiveness of this team without Russell Westbrook on the floor against the Denver Nuggets, the inability to point to a scapegoat also makes it where there's no way for this team to necessarily get worse. So I don't feel as though there's any real thing we can point the finger to in terms of this team outside of roster construction in a whole. And that's something that they do not have the flexibility to really do anything about. So Jackson, again, I think I'm going to probably ask this question a lot throughout this season, just because of the, the confusion around this team. If you are the Lakers, if you're LeBron James, even I understand that he signed the one year, the one year, the, I guess it was like a one in one essentially extension for himself that puts him not just through this season, but through, I guess, essentially next season as well. 
should LeBron James make it through this season on this team? I know this like I know that's like a real like volatile question that seems like a no brainer of like the Lakers can't get any better by trading LeBron James necessarily. That would like essentially put them in full tank mode, but like and and trading LeBron James just sounds sacrilegious when you say it out loud, right? Same thing with like Anthony Davis has been more of a hot name in terms of the idea of trading him, but I think that his his injury history is like kind of riddled his overall trade value where I think he's still a high trade asset, but oddly enough, I believe that LeBron James is easily a much more valuable asset, even at his significant age. Is that something that you think legitimately on either side should be expressed by the, like, like leading up to like the trade deadline? If I'm the Lakers, I'm not looking to get rid of LeBron just because I think that, you need an off season where you actually understand the fact that, because a lot of us were kind of naive going into the season and the fact that we thought, Oh, maybe. And I saw the roster construction that was going on. And again, I already said how this was, this is one of the worst constructed rosters I think I've ever seen. And that's just mm-hmm. not discount. That's discounting their big three. Um, sort of say that just the rest of the roster. And we were kind of like, Oh, what if, Okay, if Anthony Davis is healthy, if Russell Westbrook kind of comes back and um, we'll see what he does. It's only been one season. Um, and we were like, maybe maybe it'll be better. Well, it mm-hmm. it hasn't at all. If, they, if you have an offseason where you, like, understand, okay, we need to make some substantial changes, mm-hmm. but we can still keep LeBron, I think that you could do something with that. If I'm LeBron... Um, I think that, and you kind of mentioned this, the fact that they like have kind of worked to lighten the load on LeBron was well, done quite the opposite. <laughs> um, <laughs> exactly. He's in order for this team to win consistently, he's going to have to play 38 minutes per game at a minimum. And he's going to have to tap into that 2018 bag where he's, um, averaging 38 and eight with 38 minutes per game. And that's, the opposite of what you're trying to do. If I'm LeBron, I'm like, this is this is a terrible situation for me. The only thing keeping me here is Anthony Davis. So I think you have to see if Anthony Davis is truly because he's looked he's looked pretty Anthony Davis has looked pretty good to start the season. That's like mm-hmm. the one thing that like everybody wants to I'm pretty sure if you ask like any casual fan, they think he's doing trash because for some reason he yeah. is only um Showing the low lights. <laughs> they're only showing his shooting, which is, I don't know. We can go off on a whole nother conversation on that. That's beyond me. But um, um, <laughs> the, he's, he's been solid. And so the only thing keeping that would be keeping me here is Anthony Davis. So if he, if I'm LeBron and Anthony Davis goes down with another injury, I'm, there's nothing here for me. <laughs> there's yeah. nothing in Los Angeles for me. Yeah, I definitely understand that. And again, I hate to like be so controversial about the idea because I know that it's something that like when you say it, it sounds bizarre. The idea of trading LeBron James, the idea of calling about that. But I just don't see any upward movement for this team. We saw LeBron James average 30 last season. Granted, in a excuse me, relatively limited sample size, so to speak. I mean, it was over 50 games, so I mean, not necessarily, but he was a guy who was a high-volume scorer last season. It didn't affect the win column at all. Anthony Davis, 
Um, I think as effective as he's been on the defensive end, and that's a big part of why they, they're, you know, top two in defensive rating right now is because Anthony Davis's ability to anchor on the back end has really been effective this year. Again, he is one preconceived, might I add, injury away from instantly being ineffective. And then the Russell Westbrook element of it, again, there's games like the other, like the game the other night against the Nuggets that are proof that this, the limitations of this squad go beyond just Russell Westbrook's lack of fit or sometimes minimal basketball IQ. Again, there's a lot of clips that go around that definitely indicate this in some senses, but there's just no upward mobility for this team. And I just feel like it's one of those things where, despite the fact that it might come off as a crazy question, it is something that I feel like has to be taken into consideration. So rather than ending on a really, I guess, somber note, I guess you could say in a way, talking about the Lakers and their their struggles, I want to end on something that I think is a little bit more of an interesting conversation. And we're going to talk about NBA awards through the first like week and a half of the season. Of course, these are not things that are like predictions for us or anything. So like nobody take this as like us making choices. If you want us to make if you want to listen to a podcast about like preseason picks or preseason projections for uh, NBA awards, I have an entirely different episode that you can check out for that one as well. But in terms of like right now, just based off what we've seen on the floor, we're going to pick a couple of awards that I think uh, would be interesting just based off what we've seen and stuff that actually is like measurable in any kind of way. Um, so we're going to do MVP rookie of the year and most improved player, but we're going to frame it more around the guy, like around the idea of guys who are like on that breakout player of the year caliber. So let's start with, um, let's start with that. The breakout player of the year caliber players who are like the two or three guys that are top your list as like in MIP, so to speak candidates. Yeah. I mean, so the top one for me, at least through the limited games we have, Jalen Noel has played amazing. Um, Timberwolves. He's, um, and I looked at it because I've I've seen like him play a little bit this season, and I'm like, wow, he's playing really efficiently. He's averaging north of just north of 16 points in just 21 minutes, um, and he's doing so very efficiently, um, very effectively. It's not like he has the ball a lot of the time. We all know how that Timberwolves roster is constructed. Um, they already have a lot of ball dominant players. So it's just really, I'm really impressed with how he's played so far. It's definitely not sustainable. Um, I don't remember his shooting percentage, but I think it's like north of 55%. But like, if he can average 14, like 13 to 14 points off the bench in just like 21 minutes for that team, that is, that is indispensable. Cause I always thought that Jalen Noel was kind of like that caliber player, but I didn't know he would get it to this point, um, this quickly. Um, and just two others, um, the big obvious name, De'Aaron Fox, even though the Kings are still winless. Um, mm-hmm. He's played insane to start this season. Um, and we kind of saw this at the end of last year when he finally got healthy. Um, and, you know, him um, him and um, Shea Gilchrist-Alexander, I feel like a lot of people underrated last year just because they got healthy at the very end of last year. And then Shea and Fox both went to av- average, like, um, almost 30. I'm pretty sure Shea averaged north of 30 after the All-Star break. Um, De'Aaron averaged like 28 after the All-Star break. And right now he's at like 31, um, playing very efficiently as well. Um, and then just another name, um, Jalen Smith um, on the Pacers. I think mm. he's playing very well. A lot of players on that Pacers team, just because of the way they're constructed, is they're playing like above what we thought they would. 
Um, but I think Jalen Smith is an interesting name just because the Suns kind of cast him off, um, casted him a- away um, kind of hastily, I think. I think they could have kept him around. He would have been a valuable piece. But he's on the Pacers now, and he's making the most of his opportunity. Um, and I think that he he's a guy that can be a starting caliber center down the road for sure. Yeah, I think those are all interesting names. And I think the funny part about it is you brought up a, a handful of guys that – I would argue are a little bit more low key in terms of people's national notoriety of like the kind of improvements that they've made. Like, I feel like <clears throat> you talk about MIP, right? Like an obvious name, for example, some would probably jump the gun and say like Lori Markin, and that would be a guy that would be like a top my list if we had to like pick a winner. Um, through the first two weeks, I think another guy who's made a significant jump and a one that I think would be understandable now that he's now, in a more like now it's more focused on him in a full seasons uh layer being Tyrese Halliburton with his role with India with the Indiana Pacers and the way he's played it's kind of an expected jump considering the fact that now the keys to the car are officially his um and we we're going to see that for an entirety of a season but I think that you know, especially the Jalen Smith thing you bring up I think they are really working with a lot in Indiana across the board there's a lot that they've really hit on that I think because Jalen Smith, I think has been solid. I think Isaiah Jackson uh, in limited uh, limited minutes has also played really well. We'll probably talk about Benedict Mather in a little bit when we get to the rookie of the year in a minute. And like I think Indiana is just working with a lot. I think um, another guy that I think is like kind of interesting in this in this sense, and maybe this isn't a great like pick so to speak because he kind of was in the running or pretty high in it last year was I think Desmond Bain just continues to get better um I think the fact that he didn't like officially of course Jog like gave him the trophy or whatever but like he didn't officially win MIP last year was a little sacrilegious to me just because I felt like Jaw definitely took I guess quote-unquote the harder leap in terms of jumping from just an all-star caliber player to being like considered like superstar level i think espn and a lot of like the top 10 ranking websites had him like eighth or something bizarre like that which some people would argue maybe is like too significant of a jump i would even say that he falls closer to like 12 13 but he definitely took maybe the harder jump but i think but from from a actual skill improvement standpoint desmond bain continues to improve um as a ball handler and shot creator for himself. And he was already a guy that was kind of pegged as a three and D player when he was drafted. And the fact that now he's been able to take more of an on ball role. I mean, it just makes the Grizzlies different. It just makes the Grizzlies much better when they have another guy who can not only guard up the way he can, but then also still be able to create the way he's been able to, um, Let's move over to Rookie of the Year real quick. And like I said, I mentioned Benedict Matherin in passing. Uh, obviously, Paulo Bancaro has been there as well. Uh, thoughts on Rookie of the Year so far and thoughts on the rookie class. I think I think this class has been scary good through the first two weeks in a way that, they, they, that they've they set a pretty high, high bar for like the rest of the season with the way they've started out. Yeah, I mean, I really like this. I really liked this class coming out of the draft. Um I didn't expect um, Ben Carroll to be as to play as mature as he has so far. I guess is a way to word. He's he has really impressed me with the way he's played. I I always had Jabari um, Jabari Smith Jr. as my top player in this class, mm-hmm. just because I thought his versatility and he's played well in his own right. Just because his versatility would fit the NBA game, I think a little better. But uh, Paolo has been 
insane, at least to start. Um, Benedict Matherin is another guy who I, I kind of thought that he was going to come on a little slower um, than a lot of the guys in the top 10. I thought he was a guy that um, was going to take some time to grow, that w- but that would grow into like a fringe all-star role eventually. Well, he's so far, he's, <laughs> he's hit, he's come out of the gates um, pretty strong as well. So, and then another guy I want to talk about, um, obviously, I think Paulo right now is the rookie of the year. I would give um, some props to Benedict uh, Matherin as well. But um, I think that Jalen Duran for the Pistons has played um, very well in the role that he's been given so far. I think he's a very um, interesting player, just given his, I mean, we've seen athletic rim protectors before, but this is an 18-year-old who might be one of the most athletically gifted big men I've ever seen. Um, he's going to be in some DPOI conversations in the future. Um, at least I, I hope so, assuming he stays healthy. But, yeah, that's kind of my impression so far of um, this rookie class and my rookie of the year, um, as of right now at least. Yeah, this rookie class has just been really effective. And on although, especially a lot of the guys that we mentioned, um, come with the typical stigma that, like, they're not – going to come out and be impact players day one, right? The ability, the ability to influence winning so far with the guys that we've mentioned, whether it's Ben, whether it's Paulo, whether um, it's uh, Jabari. Um, I would even say like Keegan Murray, who hasn't played much, right? Because he had the, uh, the COVID stuff going on where he was in protocol. Um, even him, who I think was a, a, an elite player through the pre-stages leading up to the NBA season. I think he's going to be really effective. He's actually a a big reason of why I was a little bit higher on the Kings coming into this year. Although the impact from a wins column standpoint has not been there, the talent aspect has been exactly, if not above and beyond where I think it was anticipated. Paulo Beccaro, especially, I think you mentioned beforehand, the maturity in which he's played, he clearly plays at his own pace. He plays to his strengths and he's been able to do that without kind of like hyper influencing the makeup of what the Orlando magic are trying to do with some of the other guys that they have. Um, Like guys like Jalen Suggs have been able to come back and be very effective on the defensive end and be able to like step into that role and play strong. I think Franz has still been able to play uh, to his strengths they haven't really Paulo has been able to come in and play his play his game without hindering anybody. Ben Ben is different. I ain't gonna lie. He just falls into that category of just being a dude who I think brings a lot of energy. Um he's coming off the bench. I am interested to see how long that lasts because it's kind of him and my guy uh from the class beforehand and Chris uh and Chris Duarte who um I was really high on coming out of that draft and I thought it was going to be huge, but Ben's upside and of course the age disparity makes it where it could be interesting. I think that if Ben ends up being a bench player, <clears throat> a six man for the entirety of the year, he might be in the Ben Gordon role, man. I don't know. I'm not saying he'll win six man of the year, but I think he would definitely deserve some significant consideration if he continues to play at the route that he's playing. His rookie class is scary. I'm going to be honest. And it sucks that Chet is not in the mix of it. Cause I think that would make this class even more interesting in terms of seeing what this first year burst would look like. Um, we're going to finish out. This one's a little bit more casual. Cause I think there's like 8 million <clears throat> different guys that you could peg into this, but MVPs through the first two weeks. Um, I think that, 
Giannis has proved that he is the the best player in the game, like without a yeah. doubt. I mean, I think that was already um, a preconceived notion, but he has played just through three games. He's played insane. The Bucks are the only um, team who is undefeated through three, um, or at least so far into the season. And mm-hmm. he has played insanely well. Um, his efficiency um, with which he plays, his defensive impact is insane. Um, Luca, who was my um, pick um, before even the preseason for MVP, um, I think he's um, really been impressive um, just in the way that he's um, molded with a team that's a Mavericks team that's the same but also different just because you replace such a big piece in Jalen Brunson with Christian Wood. And that especially changes the makeup since Luca is a ball-dominant player. And then you had the two-guard thing with Brunson and Dinwiddie, and then you kind of shifted that, but he's still – he they've – the Ma- that Mavericks team as a whole has adjusted very quickly to that. Um, I think Shea has been really impressive, especially given the lack of talent around him, um, at least as of right now. Um, I think that his he, he's one of the best playmakers in the league just from the standpoint of being able to create for himself and others. Um, and it's going to be scary when he – and I think he'll finally get his recognition that he deserves when he gets a teammate that is not necessarily on a skill level, but – and this could be Chet um, or somebody else, maybe Trey Mann, somebody like that. Just that somebody that gets closer to his skill level um, and is able to complement him better. Um, and I think that I think that Tatum has played really well. Um, he's taken mm. he we saw we saw him in the finals and he was injured, and for most of that playoffs he was um, very inconsistent, um, inefficient at times. But he's really. Um, at least so far, um, and I don't want to look too much into this, but he's um, played within himself very well, um, and I think that's the biggest thing, and I hope he can continue that um, and just show that maturity. But, yeah. Yeah, I think Giannis, like you said, hopefully voters' fatigue doesn't kick in for this guy, but honestly it's been, you know, at least, I mean, it's been two seasons since the last time he won MVP, and, I mean, the dude has been a standout. I mean, he leads the league in points with 36. He's second in the league in rebounds with 13. He's nearly top 20 in assists with 5.3. He leads the league in PER, which is becoming a much more favorable stat in the NBA analytics analytics world in terms of effectiveness on the floor. His team's 3-0. The narrative is there that this was a team I can I can attest to. I went into the into the NBA season a, a little bit worried about them. I wasn't really super sure about their depth long-term. This is something I was worried about last season as well. And obviously entering the year without Chris Middleton is a, is a significant hit for a team that already doesn't have a ton of defensive versatility outside of their top three guys. Uh, Middleton being included alongside Giannis and of course, Drew Holiday. Um, I think alongside that, I think Luca is a really great option. I think he's a guy that a lot of people had as a front runner with his situation. I think Jason Tatum is a really good choice as well. He's played a lot more under control. I think is the best way to put it. Like you mentioned before that it seems like he's just playing with a little bit more poise. And I think that's when Jason Tatum is at his best is when he just plays with a lot more focus as opposed, opposed to, kind of hyper-emphasizing his bag. I think sometimes Jason Tatum puts a lot more focus on the idea of showing off his skill set as opposed to sometimes really just producing 
um, producing at what he's effective at the most. Damian Lillard, I think, is another one that I think should be in consideration to a certain extent. Now, I don't think the stats are nearly as gaudy, uh, but I do think that he's come out gangbusters in a way that has really helped this Portland Trailblazers team play above its weight. Um, I don't think this is long-term sustainable. I think there are a team that's going to finish between five and about nine in the standings. But this team so far is playing a lot more together. Um, they've played a lot better, so to speak, on defense as well. And um, it's been a different guy every night in terms of being able to close out the game, right? Anthony Simons one night, you know, Damian Lillard goes off here and there. Uh, Jeremy Grant gets the game winner against the Lakers. Like they're able to do it in this uh, cohesive way where Dame doesn't necessarily have to take all the responsibility, but you know that when you come down to close, he is your lead guy to be effective. And that does create other opportunities for those other dudes to be able to help cinch games. So those would be my last, those would probably be my main guys. Um, but the leader, I agree with you. It has to be honest, bro. The dude, the dude is, the, 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 I mean, we say this about him every single year about the video game stats, but, especially considering not having Chris Middleton around and the caliber of teams that uh, have been played in the early going, right. Pulling it out, pulling out against uh, Philadelphia um, and uh, beating Brooklyn. Those two being specifically the two teams I would note, just because they're two teams that are going to be in quote unquote contender conversations when we get close to the end of the year, Uh, two out of three really big wins to kick off the season. Yeah, Giannis is just a different animal. But this is the part in the podcast where I pass it over to the guests to be able to plug all their stuff and anything that you're working on moving forward. Um, and, of course, your social medias and stuff. Yeah. Um, so, obviously, the main thing that um, I'm working on, especially with the NBA season starting, um, this week I'm going to start posting a lot more or at least try to to hot takes on hoops. So, um just attempting to grow on there even more. Um, it's been, it's been great, a great experience. Um, obviously that's how, um, I got in touch with you. Um, so, um, it's been great there and, um, yeah, just working on some stuff, um, for Wahoops, um, for graphic design, which is a UVA, um, based, um, sports, just Instagram page that was started a while ago. Um, so that's been, a fun experience and um yeah that's that's pretty much it just a just a bunch of graph design stuff trying to get better um analytical stuff so yeah yeah man like like i said at the top of the podcast uh jackson's page has been one of those things that has really been able to help me kind of grow in terms of this analytical space but also putting me on game i'm not gonna lie there's a lot of players he mentioned this earlier and you could tell with guys that he mentioned, like Jalen Noel and those in passing, that he puts a lot more emphasis on certain guys that don't get as much spotlight. And that's one of the staples of this podcast that I want to try to focus on is not necessarily touching on the top teams that are always being talked about in national media, as well as players that are not discussed as much. That's why guys like the Jalen Noels, the Jared Vanderbilts and so on that were brought up in this podcast are able to get their shine because there's a lot of guys that have been very effective this season and in past seasons that I think do not get discussed as much as they should be. And I touched on this in the beginning of the podcast, and I think this is a great way that I want to end it as well is the NBA is moving towards a league where having more well-rounded rosters, more two-way effective players, more guys that are able to produce um, 
on both sides of the floor, even if it's not an elite level, they are able to be effective players in the minutes they are given. It's being heavily emphasized in this version of the league. The big twos are still there. Um, the lead superstars of the of the of the, of the NBA are always going to dominate. But in order to win a championship nowadays, these cog system guys are going to be the difference between being able to win, you know, game one and feel good about how you open up a series and closing out a game seven series where the difference between you going home or not is one possession. This league has probably been as talented as it's ever been. And I think that with a handful of these guys that, you know, it really, it really emphasizes that. And Hot Takes on Hoops is one of those pages that's really helped put me on game to one of those. So that'll, of course, be uh, in the description in terms of pages to be able to check out. I'm also going to put the Wall Hoop stuff in there, too, because this man Jackson's graphic design game is on point as well. <laughs> Definitely worth giving that some check. So with that being the case, I'm going to end off like this. My question of the day to the fans is going to be this. Who do you believe is – on the hot seat in the NBA the most, whether it's a player or a coach, I'm intrigued to see the overreactions or maybe proper reactions in terms of who you believe are some teams or players that are under the gun already so early in the season. So leave that in the comment section down below. With that being the case, I appreciate you guys for listening this long. And until next time, peace.